What is up, internet friends? Welcome to Full Stack Whatever. I'm your host, Michael Omens, and today I'm excited to bring you a conversation with Haraldur Thorlefsen, or Holly, for short. This week's a special one. I met up with Holly at Kinfoots in Brooklyn, and he was gracious enough to give me some of his time. We still recorded at a dining table, but this dining table was actually in the middle of an auditorium during the conference happy hour. So please bear with us as there's going to be a lot of noise in the background. Holly is a creative and an entrepreneur who is most known for founding Weno. Since then, he has helped build over 500 rams to make stores and venues in Iceland accessible, has ventured into music, and is now the owner of a bar slash restaurant slash theater in Reykjavik. Here is episode 13, live at Kinfrance. You know, I didn't even think we would see each other in real life for a very long time. I'm very happy to be here with you and at least the opportunity to try and record something. And hopefully yes. we can do this again. We'll see what, yeah, we'll see we'll what see, happens. We'll see what comes out of it, basically. Um, as you were presenting at the conference, what I found is that most of the things that you talked about are things that I love talking about here. That's great. And so I hope that it's okay to repeat some of these things. Yeah, for sure. What was the pivotal moment for you when you were like, I want to get into design? Like, I want to do this. This is how I'm going to express myself. I think it wasn't like that at all. Because usually, well, in this case at least, it took me a long time to realize why I was doing what I was doing. Or I had to find a why because I was doing a lot of it. But I started working on design I went to university, I went to study philosophy, and then I needed something more practical, so I went into finance. And when I was doing the, the, the BS in finance, there was a course on sort of IT, and this was in like 90, 98. So fairly early days of the internet. And you know, one week we were supposed to build like a website or you know, page, basically. Put your name up and um, What's your email and I, I don't know like hobbies or something and i did that and i thought this is pretty amazing like i can write some stuff i can put it out there and in theory anyone can see it obviously no one did but in theory anyone could that became something i was fascinated with first i thought i needed to be a developer so because that was the the lens that it was brought to it was like extremely basic html mm -hmm. But I realized quickly through Flash that I, what I was really interested in was much more design. And I, I could sort of cheat my way through some of the action script and, and some of that stuff. So I built a lot of Flash stuff early in my career and that was extremely interesting. And I didn't call myself a designer at this time. I started working with other designers and I became frustrated working with them because I didn't feel like they were doing what I was asking them to do. Because I was kind of a project manager at that point more than anything else. And so I started to design more and more and more, and it sort of happened organically over time. But all the time that I was doing this, I was thinking, you know, because I was doing this mostly as I went through university or I finished my studies, and, and then I decided to take a master's in economics. And that was supposed to be when I was going to break away. This was, was in 2004. Mm -hmm. I was thinking, okay, I'm going to you know, start my real career now, which will be as an economist. Um, as I was getting closer to graduating, I... I met with a few people that were actually economists and I thought that's probably not what I want to do. Yeah. I mean the theory is it's fun but I actually don't want to work in a bank or do a lot of the things that I thought at least at that time that being an economist meant. So I went back to design and again I was thinking that's going to be temporary while I while I figure out my real job and I guess I'm still working on that. 
that's 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 really interesting because that we hear that a lot, right? Especially that that time where is this a real job? Was this like a thing that you can make money with? So when what was there like a moment? You know, after did you finish that that masters? No, I, I didn't finish my dissertation mm-hmm. because again, I or maybe it was a cop out, but I at least thought, okay, um, yeah, I don't want to do this as a job. I feel like I've learned enough about it, and it's interesting, but I really don't want to work as an economist. Okay, did you go back into design? Was that like yeah? The- so I, I I went into design because it was basically just a way to maintain myself. I needed to have you know money as we do. And I had used design throughout my, my university days to make a living. And I thought, well, I can do that at least. It's a decent living, and I can do that while I find something else. And so, did it just snowball? It was a very, I mean, I guess like, well, snowballing is maybe a good analogy, because in the beginning, it's a very small snowball. Mm-hmm. And yeah. it was pretty small for a very long time. And, and so I went into, you know, I started drinking pretty heavily and became a very, you know, professional alcoholic. Did that as a day drinker and, and was doing design on the side as well, you know, to basically maintain my drinking. And it was, I don't know, maybe five, six, seven years of that where I was able to sort of just work. And I did decent work. I was working for big clients. We did a lot of work with Google and, and other companies. But it wasn't, I didn't take the job really seriously until I stopped drinking. And the flexibility of the freelance career was like what allowed you to keep that lifestyle going? Yes, I mean, it's basically, if you're able to kid yourself into believing that it's okay to be a day drinker, Mm -hmm. and you have a job like I did that kept me going, and because in theory I was fairly successful, like again, I was working with big companies, from the outside, I think it looked pretty good. I was telling myself it was okay because I was able to keep doing this and I was you know, messing up a lot, but I still got chances to redo things and I, I was able to keep drinking without necessarily having a rock bottom, which I think I definitely needed. What And so you're doing this design contract work. It's very slowly. It, it, it's, it's maybe a snowball or it's or the other direction. The other way to say it is like very slowly and then all at once, probably, where, right, where yeah. you had some hockey stick growth trajectory. Was was the Google moment, was that your moment? No, I was working with Google for a long time, from 2007. I was doing a lot of freelance work with Google until 2011, 12, when I stopped drinking. And not just Google, it was you know Square. There was a bunch of these companies that were kind of big. But again, it wasn't really until I stopped drinking. There was a project which I did with... Uh, an agency called Upper Quad in, in 2013, which was really the, the big moment for me, which was the Google Santa Tracker, which was a site where there were games and there were building excitement for Christmas, basically. And I was able to sort of cheat myself into a position where I was leading that project. And I used that opportunity, I think, really well. And that gave me both the confidence because I realized I could actually do this because I, I was managing developers and brand people and all sorts of people and also some of the connections and, and things that I needed to then start my own agency. So you, you mentioned stopping drinking and also having that breakout moment. Were those things related to each other or were they kind of... Oh yeah, absolutely. I don't, you know, there was no way that I could have done what I did later if I had not stopped. So. A year after I stopped drinking, we had our first child. We moved to Tokyo, and basically my whole life changed. And, you know, a year after that, I, I started Weno, and that was the big moment for me. 
um, if if not for that, then I, I could have ended up in a very different place. If you if you don't mind me asking, what was the kind of pivotal point where you decided I'm going to stop drinking? There was um, uh, I was I was seeing someone, and you know I thought she was great. And there was a night when we went out drinking, and that night escalated, and we got into a huge fight. We broke up. I asked her. She had. We were sort of living together. I asked her to move out, and then after that, when I sobered up and and, and sort of realized what had happened, I realized okay, it was this finally this moment that were some kind of consequence for my drinking because I was able to up to that point kind of wing it, but there I had to make this choice: either I'm gonna stop drinking or I'm gonna lose this person. Who then, uh, you know, we stopped together and we we stopped drinking. We now we have two kids and have been married for 12, 13 years. So is this this is the same person? Yes. Wow. 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 So you had this moment; it almost completely exploded. Yes. And then you both decided together we are going to be we're going to be in this together, basically. Yes, I think. I mean, she was she was more codependent than alcoholic because mm-hmm. she would drink a lot with me, but she also stopped drinking. Yeah, we decided that we would sort of do this together or I think she did a lot of it for me to be honest but it was a life she didn't really regret walking away from yeah wow I I find that to be a really compelling topic because this is not something that you know people talk about when we're like hey let's get on a podcast let's talk about your career let's talk about your life and how it's connected to your career so there was this really beautiful moment I mean a hard but beautiful moment that put everything into gear for you in a way right so you made some conscious decisions that were for your personal health, for your mental health, for your relationship. And when the work came your way, you were able and capable of handling the work. Yeah. And then you were able to accelerate that by starting Weno. What made you make the decision to start Weno? Going back to that project I mentioned before, the Google Sign Tracker was kind of this thing where I realized that I could actually do things at a much bigger scale. But I also realized, because I had a, my own website and I was working on a, a case study for the project. And my website, you know, the URL was just my name. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there have been 20 people that worked on this thing. And it, it kind of felt weird that I would put this project up. And I didn't know how to really frame it. Either I would be too humble and, and just, it would feel like I was just, you know, one of the people when I was actually the person leading it. Or I was also afraid to take the whole credit which again, if it was under my banner, it didn't make any sense. So I started thinking about, uh, I need to put something together. Even if it's, the original idea was, I'm gonna just have a bunch of people that I like working with, freelancers, and we're gonna assemble teams on the fly. And I talked to Dan Mall, who was doing something similar at the time. Yeah, super friendly, yeah. yeah. And I was really inspired by him, and I thought, okay, that's what I wanna do. I'll just use this banner of a company, but we'll, I'll just keep working with freelancers. So that, that's how it started. And, and for the first year, there, was, there were no employees. But then you know, I kind of realized that wasn't really what I wanted either. So maybe the snowballing thing is then the, yeah. the metaphor that keeps going, right. where like we start we start. Yeah, and so I, I realized, OK, I, you know, there were these people that I really liked working with. And if they were freelancers, they weren't available when I needed them. Yeah. There were people I got very comfortable with that, you know, you develop shorthand with, you want to work with them again and again and again. So I, I started just trying to hire them instead. And, and that became the foundation of, of Weno. It's all these amazing people that I've been working with. Some of them joined and it kind of grew from there. Ueno and yourself had this rocket path from very early on. Right. 
was there a strategy or did you fall into it? Or did you have an idea for some kind of campaign <laughs> by which you were going to effectively completely surround a tech industry and then start doing work for a lot of really big players? I think with any story, there's a lot of luck involved. There are a few conscious things that I did. I moved to San Francisco because you know I've been freelancing for a while at this point, seven years, and most of my clients were coming from there. It was clear that if I wanted to use the network that I had, then San Francisco was the place. So I, I was able to move there, and it, this was in 2014. So it would be at a time where things were still exploding in, in San Francisco. A lot of these companies were popping up. We did a lot of work with very high growth companies. Dropbox at the time was like when where all the great designers were. Soleil was just hiring. Yeah, Soleil everyone. was the machine yes. that like sucked them all into Dropbox. Yes. And you know we did work with them. We started working with Facebook, and it was just a time when everyone needed good designers and creatives. And so timing was really great. Being in that place at that time was really great. And then I was to you know the reason I was drinking is I was trying to escape. That became work. And so I just worked a lot, all day, every day, every week for years, just to not have to think about the things, you know, the demons that otherwise would creep in if there was a gap in my brain. Which, which brings us to, you just gave a talk at a conference called Kinference in Brooklyn, and you mentioned this big gap that would have caught your attention if you weren't trying to block it with something. Do you, would you like to go into this a little bit? Sure. There's a few different things in my life, I think, but, but the, the two main ones that have kind of really altered my perception of life is one is I lost my mom in a car accident when I was 11. And the other is I have muscle dystrophy, which is kind of affects in pretty drastically at this point the way I'm able to live. But I think looking back on it, I think probably losing my mom was the much bigger catalyst because it altered my life in a very severe way. So simplest terms, before this, I was a very happy kid. I was social, I had friends and I was popular in school. And, you know, even though I had this disability, I, I kind of had a, a big mouth. So, you know, I didn't really get teased. My life was really nice. My, my parents didn't have really any money, you know. They were divorced, but it was, so I had two very happy family lives. So my dad found another wife, my mom found another husband, and both homes were very happy. So it was just this wonderful time. I was growing up in Iceland in a beautiful surrounding, very free. I was able to go outside, you know, all summer, no responsibilities, nothing. And then there was this moment when my mom died. And after that, there was something in me that kind of broke. It was extremely hard for me to form connections with people. It was possible to be, you know, sustain any level of happiness. And it wasn't until, you know, I started creating things that I kind of found that drive to keep going. So I kept creating things and I still have this in me where I have to keep making things over and over and over again. And I really obsess over them. It's often not an enjoyable process. It's, it sometimes feels like torture because I, to a degree, that's, I think, probably not healthy about some of the things that I make. And I will stay up late and I will abandon a lot of my other responsibilities. I will do self-destructive things. I won't eat. You know, there, you know, there's a bunch of stuff. And I've been thinking about this for a while because I keep spinning up projects. And at this point, it's, I don't need, need financially to do these things. I'm, I'm, I was lucky enough to you know, build this company and sell it and have enough money that I don't really have to work. And when I was a kid... Sorry, I'm rambling now, but when I was younger, I often thought you see these people that were successful and they just kept going and you couldn't understand why because, you know, a lot of people, I think healthy people, 
have an attitude attitude towards work where it's that's what I do to be able to live. Mm-hmm. And if I if I don't need to do that, then I'll just live more or better. But to me, that moment never came. It was never a moment. Okay, I have enough, and now I'll just go live my life because my life doesn't really. I don't know how to live as a human person. I don't know how to still even you know I have a wonderful wife, wonderful kids. I have great friends, but I always still feel like I'm not really a human being in the full sense. I'm not able to connect in the way that I want to connect with people. I'm not able to enjoy things in the way that I see other people enjoying them. But I realize that the reason I obsess over all of these things is at least partly because it is a way for me to connect. I have a lot of joy in making something, stepping away from it and watching other people have meaningful lives around it. And it's this strange thing where consciously or not, I I feel like I can at least make life better for others even if I can't figure out how to make myself whole. Is there a way where you attribute your self-worth to the work that you put into the world? Yes, yes. I mean, I think like anything, I think it's complicated and you know, a part of it I think is you know, having a disability and growing up in a society that kind of thinks like people that have disabilities are less in some way than other people that have always felt like this need to prove that i am not less and again it's this it's this hole in your soul that no matter how much you pour into it it's never enough there's no amount of success that will make me think well actually i've t- checked that box i am a worthy enough person to to live in society and so it, 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 there is this never ending chase for being enough somehow and and that definitely is a, a contributing factor what's interesting to me about this specifically is that i'm not hearing that it's about personal validation here right like i'm not hearing that like oh you want you know someone to say hey you're fantastic which is also ironic because of how much validation you have received right and how many pictures of you and the president of iceland there are <laughs> and so i don't think i've ever encountered a person that is n- that is not extrinsically motivated but is actually intrinsically motivated to build things for others right. just to see others use them mm-hmm. what intrigues me is that your work has gone from digital product design and digital brand design and and just anything to do with technology more horizontally into a different medium with your music work that is about to that has come out and is about to come out more and also into the physical realm with the restaurant bar theater that you're building right. as well as with your ramp project which obviously mm-hmm. is why you have so many pictures with the president of Iceland how do you see your physical projects connect to like your digital projects is there a connection Yes, I think and I thought about this for a long time not for me but in general because if you meet a creative person there's often this you know sometimes there are people that are like okay I wanted to be an architect since I was 3 but a lot of times it's people that there's some event you know their cousin worked at a studio mm-hmm. and they got an internship or something and that's and now they're like a producer or they used to date someone that was in architecture and they were able to get them a job you know some random thing happened in their life often that that sort of pushed them towards specific 
track where they were professionally successful. And I often think about that as there w there could have been many other random things that could have happened. Most graph designers are like failed musicians, I've found. Or, you know, there's all, all these different things that people are, they want to create and they, they, they find a thing that they're the creating and that's great and i think once you've sort of done that at least for me i found that what i was creating was kind of incidental it wasn't that i had this huge passion necessarily for the internet or things it was just that was where i could find money and that was, that's a job and people would pay me for it and you know figure out i could do it but it wasn't because i was like a, you know, i can't draw anything for example, I, I don't have any natural talent for design. I, I didn't really design anything until I was like 23, four years old. It was more just like I was really stubborn and I just kept going until I figured it out. And I think that's probably the case with most people. It's not that they have, you know, I don't, I don't believe in things like talent, for example. I think it's much more about just not quitting when mm -hmm. things get hard. And so I always thought, you know, it's just random that I do this thing. I could very well just do another thing. And so when I, once I got the opportunities, I just started trying out other things. And it was the same process. I didn't know how to do them. And I got really stubborn about it. And I just kept going until it kind of worked. And it was messy and, and really hard. But over time, you start to realize that everything is kind of connected. And you can translate skills from one thing to another. And... The more things you do, the more things are easier. You see people that learn languages and they learn like the first three or four are tough. And, and then all of a sudden they know like 50 languages because they just realized, oh, there's a common thread to all these things. Or, or a common negative feeling to overcome. In a right. I love the irony of your, you've displaced alcoholism with workaholism, mm -hmm. but then workaholism becomes the actual weapon for you to veer into different creative pursuits. Right. Well, I think if you think about a person, you know, their goal in life is probably to be happy and, you know, be safe and have food and basic human need things. And they use these skills that they have to achieve them. I think in my case, I obviously want to be happy. I don't think I, I'm not sure if I have the mental capacity at this point to do it, but I'm at least able to use the things that are, you know, weaknesses and pull them into, I hope, some positive venues. So yes, I'm an alcoholic, but I can at least I can point it towards something. It will never make me happy, I think. At this point, I've kind of exhausted that route. There's no amount of success that I will get that will actually make me happy. That's pretty clear. But it's still, at least I can keep doing them while I figure out, hopefully, some future state where I will find another way which actually makes me happy. We are now in a time where you're about to release your album. Mm -hmm. what, what's your artist name? My, uh, the artist name is Anionason, which is a deliberately picked name. It's very hard for anyone that's not Icelandic to either read or say. Uh, impossible to spell. But it, it does mean the son of Anayona, which is my mom. And in Iceland and in you know some of the Scandinavian cultures in different countries, you're named after your, your parents, typically your father. And... You know, so I'm Thorleifsson, which is the son of Thorleifr, which is my father. But for the music, I decided this is probably goes back to before I used a wheelchair. I, I had a different walk to other people, and I was very conscious of that and very self-conscious of anyone looking at me walking. Or, and, and 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 so I have this fear of 
rejection or humiliation that is pretty stuck in me. I'm very afraid of just avoiding any situation where I could potentially be ridiculed. And with music, that was definitely a fear. It was this thing that I hadn't I had this weird trajectory through my career where I became successful in one f- and I wanted to put out music. And in most cases, you know, you can put out music and it doesn't really fail publicly. It, you know, if it doesn't work, almost nobody knows. Mm-hmm. But in my case, I was putting out music and at least in like Iceland, it would always be pretty publicly notable if I put out terrible music. And, and so I was always really afraid of showing that or, or putting it out. As I thought through this, I, I kept thinking again about my mom and, and the safety that she brought to me as a kid. And there was no judgment. And that's like a lot of moms do. Like, there was, you know, everything the kid does is amazing. And so I just wanted to bring that feeling over. And I decided, okay, well, I'll, I'll use my mom and, and her memory. And I'll come, you know, put this out under, as a son of my mom. And as her son, through her eyes, there is no failure. It's all wonderful. So I'm sort of protected by that idea of if it doesn't work, if people hate it, it doesn't matter because she would have loved it. That's really beautiful. What I find is, as you explain that, I I deeply believe that. And I also know that as a part of this, you have created a music video for every single track, right? which allows you to also use your superpowers in a way to protect that legacy much more so and, and put a couple of shields in place yes before there is the backstop of like the love of your mother basically right yeah first i wanted to make the, the songs and i realized well i don't really i mean i'm 45 years old i have two kids and a wife and a life in iceland i don't really have the dreams of a 20 year old that wants to go tour the world and live in you know buses so i'm not not to say that anyone would want that, but I'm not going to go and have concerts all over the place. So I figured I kind of have to put something out there that can travel for me. So music videos were kind of the, the thing that I wanted to do. I love how it rounds out the, the, the concept. So next to, next to your music, you are working on a physical space that coincidentally is opening the week that you are not there, right. I believe. Yes. How did that come about? What was it about, like, wanting to... Did you just really want to start a restaurant? <laughs> like, wish. Well, I, you know, I think at least when I was growing up, you know, you'd go to a bar and, and, or you talk to someone. There's a lot of people that say, well, I just want to have, like, I want to ha- own my own coffee shop or I want to own a little store or do something. You know, a lot of people, especially in tech now, have this dream of... Coffee shop that turns into a wine bar. Right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but I think what motivated me, though, was... So that, that's always been in my life where I thought, okay... Well, it would be great to create this place because I'm going back to what I said before. I kind of like making things and then walking away. Like I think I'm a great host for a party, but I'm an incredibly uncomfortable person to be at a party. So I can make a really good party, but I would ideally just want to disappear and just watch everyone else enjoy themselves. And, and with a restaurant, you can kind of do that. You can make something that hopefully a lot of people will enjoy, but you don't really have to be there all the time. But there was this moment when, when we moved back to Iceland. I moved to basically one block from where I grew up. And across the street from there, there was this house that I used to walk past all the time. And it's really beautiful. It's sort of oval-shaped. And I I just really always loved that house. I would walk past there with my mom all the time. And I remember some conversations even we had about it. And we moved back. And I don't know, we after that there was a for sale sign in the window of the ground floor 
again, I was, you know, at this moment where I just sold my company, I had money, I was able to afford actually just buying the space. And I've been looking for a way to celebrate my mom for a long time. Going back to what I said, you know, she was just this extremely warm, caring person, obviously to, to me, but also to a lot of people like, you know, you know, it's 30 something years since she died. And I still meet people that, you know, all, all the time that knew her and come up to me and say, she was just this wonderful person. And she brought just this kind of safety and warmth to people. And I wanted to replicate that. I wanted to have a place to remember her where people would kind of almost like they would come to visit her in a space that was inspired, not necessarily just by her, but by my memory of her. My mom died when I was 11, so I don't really think I knew her as a person. I have an 11-year-old kid now, and even though I, you know, you, you invite them in, you don't necessarily share your full self with an 11-year-old kid. And so I have this probably warped view of this perfect person, because when she died, she was kind of still perfect. I never went through the phase that I went with my dad, where, where he became like obnoxious, because you know every teenager goes through that. But she died at this time when she was just perfect. And I wanted to, and it should hopefully feel like otherworldly in some way. And so we put a lot of time into designing and creating a space that is, in my mind at least, achieves those goals. Like you said, it's opening, hopefully this week, we're waiting for the final permit to come through. And it's called Anayona, like my mom. And I'm just really excited to be outside the window and watch other people enjoy it. <laughs> <laughs> But there's a ramp, so you could go in. There, there is a, yes, it's very accessible. It's actually, it's we put a lot of effort into making it extremely accessible to the point where we built a bar low, which meant we had to build the back of the bar. We had to go down into the into the floor, so there's a, a ramp down into the back of the bar. Oh wow! So that if you're in a wheelchair, eye to eye with the the person in the back of the bar. That's awesome. That's really cool. Um, we're probably gonna get kicked out in a second. I just have one final question because your projects are finishing up. Mm -hmm. Is do you have anything lined up or? Well, yeah, yes, I have this perpetual problem where I, I keep telling myself and well, my wife and my family that you know I just need to finish this one thing, but it's never. I, I don't think it's actually true. I think I've we, we've kind of realized it's not going to happen. It's not in my nature just relax. So I keep spinning up more and more projects. We recently launched a project in Iceland that is we've built or set up the the biggest co-working space for creative people in in Iceland, which is just under two hundred people of all sorts of designers and musicians and just artists that have their own space to work and then there's this community that we've created that that is wonderful and it's that's definitely blooming i'm hoping to open up a few more of those in iceland in the next few months or, or years so that's one i'm working with my wife building an artist residency we, we were able to find a plot of land just outside the, the, the sort of the city in, in reykjavik so we're gonna have a place where artists can come and create art and, and live sort of in the city, but not. And there's a few other things that I'm working on. And so it's just it's this never-ending escape, I think, from having to deal with the, the problems of being human. To me, it seems like a path towards becoming this human, and you kind of, in a Freudian way, ended on this. I just want to say thank you for being here with me. Thank you for giving me the opportunity to talk with you about this. And thank you for to the venue. And yeah. I'm going to leave this in because they let us stay here while the lights were turned off. Yeah, much for having me. Thank you. 
But hey, if you're still here, thank you for bearing with us. I was deeply moved when Holly told his story at the conference, and I'm very thankful that he brought up some of his biggest life challenges for us. If you're interested in future episodes, please subscribe. And if you have any feedback or suggestion, don't hesitate to reach out. Thanks again for listening, and see you next week when I'll be talking with Matthew Buchanan.